The message today is an important one. I'm gonna ask for your full attention. If you're new, second week we've been in this remarkable letter titled Romans. Without a doubt, it is the most influential letter ever written. I don't think you can even make an argument against that. This letter has had more of a shaping influence, this one letter, than all other letters combined, (laughs) really, in human history, in my opinion. You're gonna see why. The profound truths and human insight inspired coming from the Spirit of God, it's unlike anything you've ever encountered before. So this letter is written to a group of Christians living in the city of Rome, written by the Apostle Paul, living in the first century AD. Paul is sharp, he understands these Christians have a unique environment in which they live. Rome itself, Rome, world power, one of the greatest of all time. It's influenced far and wide, agriculture, militarily, politics, you name it. Rome set the standard. You know, you can visit ancient aqueducts that are over 2,000 years old in North Africa, built by the Romans. That was the reach of the Roman Empire. I mean, when Rome wanted to flex, it was over. There was no competition. Rome was also known for its vices. For example, if you've been to the Colosseum, you know it seats at least 50,000 people. Seats were arranged by socioeconomic standing. If you were wealthy, you had the front row. If you were poor, you had the nosebleeds. 50,000 people, minimum, would watch men fight until the death. Fight until the death, could you imagine? It was entertainment. Roman emperors were particularly wicked, narcissistic. I think one could even say, probably satanically inspired. For example, Nero had an affinity for young boys, castrated them. See, the belief was that if you castrated young boys, it would maintain their youthful appearance. One named Sporus, he dressed up in a gown, had a public ceremony. Historians tell us that the people applauded. Yes, yes, what a wonderful thing. Look at Nero. He's now married to Sporus, this little boy. Filled with vices from the top. And there is also the presence of these Jesus followers. Paul is smart, he understands. They need encouragement. Because if these Christians in Rome, influential city, in many ways not unlike Scottsdale or Phoenix, you know, we're, we're growing rapidly. Maricopa County is consistently one of the fastest growing counties in America. Why? People want to be here. Not in July, but you know what I'm saying. They wanna be here. Nine months out of the year, it's paradise here. Standard of living is great. Large city, very influential. You guys do business here, you go elsewhere, you travel. Rome was the epicenter, the hub of it all. Paul's like, if if we can get Rome, ooh, the potential. Now, the occasion of the letter I mentioned last week, these people, they've heard of Paul But these Christians are suspicious because they know him best as a terrorist. He was present at the first execution, Christian martyr named Stephen. Paul was there, oversaw that. Christian terrorist, then he receives Christ. So they're like, is he legit? What message is he gonna bring when he comes to us? That's why when you read Romans, it's like thick with theology. Paul's like, let me just lay it down for you. This is what I believe about God, human depravity. 
God's solution to man's problem is Jesus. So it's packed with theology. So it's like he says, calm down, it's okay. This is who I am. In chapter one, verse eight, he makes a remarkable statement about them. And essentially what he says is, there's something you are known for. And I want to encourage you. And this is the standard for every church since. Okay, here's what he writes. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, every single one of you Christians living in Rome. When I pray, I thank God every time, every time when I think of you. Here's why. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. That's the standard. That's Illuminate Community Church. That's the standard, okay? So here's what he's saying. Christians gather together to receive instruction, to encourage one another, to serve one another, to love on one another. That's how we get built up. But we get built up for the purpose, we gather for the purpose of being scattered. We go out, we go out. And in our spheres of influence, our faith is present. And remarkably, in the midst of this culture, okay, Paul says, I, the world knows about your faith, Roman Christians. The world knows about this. This is a very diverse church. Understand that Christianity started with a group of Jews who were like, wait a minute, we think Jesus is the Messiah. Like, there's like some overwhelming evidence, specifically the fact that many of us saw the resurrected Jesus. Now we gotta deal with that. Jesus is the Messiah. Jews would not be worshiping a man as God. Something happened. That would be blasphemous, but all these Jews in the first century are like bowing down to Jesus. You're like, whoa, 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 what's going on? Well, Jesus did what he said he was gonna do. So it starts in Jerusalem with this little group of the way followers. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, very exclusive, but if you come back from the dead, dude, you, I'm sorry, everything else you say is true, okay? So if you're the only way you say, you, powers are very, okay, good, we need to follow you whether we like it or not, okay? That just demands your attention. That's why Christianity is a thing and, and why it didn't just fizzle out. So it started in Jerusalem with these with Jews, but then it started to spread. And then all of a sudden, non-Jews are hearing this message about Jesus and they're like, yeah, that makes sense. We need that. Well, that church in Rome now is, is rather diverse. And Paul says, in all of your diversity, you have this common thread. You leave here and you start telling people about your faith in Jesus and it's beginning to change things. In fact, Rome would have no, Rome thought it was the, Rome thought it had the power. Paul's about to expose the real power. Rome had no power compared to the power of the gospel. Rome thought it would last forever. It ate itself. It was a victim of its own vices and corruption. Had no idea that this fledgling group of Christians would grow faster and further and have more of a worldwide influence even 2,000 years later to this day than Rome could ever dream for itself. He says, I'm so grateful. I'm grateful your faith is heard throughout the entire world. Now, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you talking about you all the time, always in my prayers. I'm always talking to you about God. And I'm asking that somehow, God, somehow, here's what he says. I, I think about you all the time, 
And when I do, I'm asking God, somehow, God, can you make a way for me to succeed in coming to visit you? I really wanna be with you, really wanna be with you. And I don't know how that's gonna happen. So my prayer is, somehow, God, you're gonna have to make it happen. Now, what I'm about to share next, based on what Paul says, is going to help you in your prayer life, all right? You have something you want God to do, and so far it's not happening in the way you want it to or the way you expect it to, okay? Put a parenthesis there. So, there's a preacher that I admire, rather famous preacher, and he tells the story about his father who is not a believer. And time after time, he would approach his dad and say, Dad, I just need you to listen. I just need to share with you what is the most important thing to me, and he would share his faith. And his dad was always polite, but always dismissive. That's fine for you, son, but I don't wanna hear it. Very articulate preacher, great orator, had a, a widespread influence could not reach his dad with the message that he could reach so many else with. He began to pray this prayer. God, somehow, somehow will you reach my dad? Fast forward a few years, and he's contacted by a man who says, you don't know me, but I'm a local city bus driver. And your dad rides my bus. He has every day to work for about the last 10 plus years. And I'm a Christian. And every opportunity I had, I would share my faith with your dad. And I'm happy to tell you that the other day he received Christ. That great preacher had no idea that some obscure bus driver would be the one that would be the answer to his prayer. God somehow, somehow work it out. Paul prays, God, I don't know how I'm gonna get to Rome. It's a long journey, it's super expensive. Now, let's fast forward. Paul does get to Rome. You know how? On board a Roman cargo ship as a prisoner. Oh, he's going to Rome, and Rome is paying for it. All expenses. His travel expenses, his food, his lodging, Rome's gonna pay every penny of it because he gets falsely accused. He's born a Jew, but he's a unique dude in that he has Roman citizenship. So when he's falsely accused, he's like, I wanna see Caesar. Well, Caesar's in Rome, and if you appeal to him, you have that right, get on board the boat. We'll take you there. Think about it, Paul's on board that boat, and he's like, well, God, this is a, this, I didn't see this coming. Somehow, see, you know the beautiful thing about that? When you make that your prayer, the pressure's off. God works in ways that you can't even imagine behind the scenes. You, you have no control. Isn't that great? Relax a little bit. God has all the control. And so when you pray, God, however, however, somehow, what you do is you end up falling back into the providence and sovereignty of God. Well, uh, it's interesting because Paul wants to be an encouragement to them as he sees them. And this is the real reason, verse 11, for I long to see you so that I might impart to you some spiritual gift that I have in order to strengthen you. That is, that, that we may be mutually encouraged. I'll encourage you, you encourage me. God has gifted me, I'll use my gifts to be a blessing to you, then in turn, you use your gifts to be a blessing to me. I've said it for the last couple of weeks. 
our church is like any other and that we are healthy only to the degree that you guys are blessing me and each other, and I'm blessing you. Paul's like, if I have the gift of teaching, I better be using it to, to bless you, to edify you, to build you up. And then when I'm in your presence, you're gonna have some gift and you're gonna use it to bless me. See, and that's how it's supposed to be. We gather, we get encouraged, and then we scatter with our faith. Mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. This dude is so humble, spiritual giant, and he's humble. You know what's interesting? There's only one place, extra biblical literature, it's not in the Bible, you won't find it, that gives us a physical description of Paul. If it's legit, if it's right, let me read it to you. This is what it is. The Apostle Paul had a large nose, eyebrows that attached to each other, small frame, hunched, thin hair, knees that separated. This is a little guy that would have no outward physical attraction, okay? if this is accurate. Now, what's interesting is that in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes to those who, who criticize him. And he doesn't deny some of their criticisms. He's like, you know what, on that one you're right. This one you're wrong, but on that one you're right. And listen to what he says. For they say, they say about me, his letters are weighty and strong. Like, okay, we'll give it to you, Paul. You can write. The guy can write. But when he's with us physically, weak. This is Paul? This is the church planting savage that everybody's talking about? This guy? Not only that, but he's not the great orator. He doesn't use polysyllabic words. His words are of very little weight. But when the dude writes, it gets profound. You're about to see how true that is in a moment. And the scriptures are inspired by the Spirit of God. This is what made Paul profound. The Spirit of God writing through him, superintending the authorship. Speech of no account, presence weak, but his letters are strong. Now, lest they think that they've, he's been avoiding them, verse 13, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. Want to come in order that I might reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. This was a unique church, like I said. This church wasn't made just of Jews who had placed their faith in Jesus. You had Greeks, you had barbarians, you had Romans, you had Gentiles, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. It's interesting, Paul considers himself actually to be indebted to the Gentiles. When he got saved, Jesus told him, you're gonna start reaching the Gentiles. And he, Paul's like, hold up, these people are dirty and unclean. And, and, and Jesus is like, no, yeah, just like you. Mm -hmm, just like you. Their heart is as deceitful. You see, in a bit, we're gonna read, Paul says, hey, all, you all of you God deniers, you're without excuse. All of you religion people, your heart is also pretty dark. And all of you moralists, well, you can't even live up to your own standards. He just demolishes everybody. Everybody is a sinner separated from God. So he says, I, I'm preaching to, to everybody. So Back in, back in the day, the world was extraordinarily divided because it was basically like our people group and then everybody else. Jew, Gentile, non-Jew. Greeks, barbarians. The etymology of the word barbarian is really interesting. So the Greeks believed that they had the purest language. They loved their language. They thought it was so beautiful. 
And all non-Greek speakers to a Greek sounded like bar, 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 barbarians. If your name is Barbara, <laughs> it means foreigner, foreign. Because to the Greeks, you either spoke Greek or you were just a barbarian. Paul's like, whatever, <laughs> you know, uh, we're all barbarians to the gospel. We're all Gentiles. We're all separated from God. And so I bring it to all people. Now, verse 16, I just want you to imagine the apostle Paul, and this fits, you know, this is kind of the style of writing back in the day. You kind of build something up to this crescendo. And in verse 16, I see the summary statement of the entire book. So I want you to picture the apostle Paul just sort of, he puts the pen down. He takes a deep breath and he's contemplating, how do I want to word? How do I want to say this? Remember his words, his letters are weighty. He's thinking about this. Got it. Picks up the pen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And here's why. Because it's powerful. It's the kind of power that comes from God. It transforms people's lives. It brings salvation to everyone, but to the Jew first. Why the Jew first? Well, the hard root of Christianity is Jewish. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. When God wanted to entrust his words, his law to humanity, who did he start with? What people group? The Jews. They did a phenomenal job of keeping it intact and handing it down. Good choice. Hard root of Christianity is Jewish. So to the Jew first. So Paul would roll into town. He'd be like, where's the synagogue? All right, I'm gonna preach Jesus there. And then when I'm done there, I'm gonna go straight to the marketplace and I'm gonna speak in the town center and I'm gonna talk to those people, those Gentiles. Jew first and then to the Gentiles. Rome thought that it had the power. It had no power over the gospel. I hope you realize that. Do not be confused. You know, you're constantly being preached at in terms of what is powerful in this world. Nothing compares to the power of the gospel. Like I said, Rome didn't have a clue of how Christianity would, would, would outlast it. And, and in some ways, Christianity brought an end to the, to the Roman Empire because it brought about morality in ways that had never been seen before. You know what's interesting? People think that Rome was this great power. Rome should actually be pitied. You know why? Historians have yet to uncover one ancient orphanage in all of Rome. And that was a culture that produced many orphans. They have yet to discover one hospital, one ancient hospital in Rome. And Rome produced a tremendous amount of violence. They thought they were powerful. No, they had no, they should be pitied. The power, Paul says, is in the message of Jesus. It has the power to transfer people, to save people. How so? Verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, from beginning to end, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So in chapter three, we're gonna take a deep dive into this word righteousness, but for now, I wanna set it up by telling you this. It's a, it's a complicated word for some. Let me try to explain it to you simply. Think of righteousness as validation, validation, right? You go out to dinner. You pull into a parking garage. You're like, oh, oh man, I gotta pay for parking before I eat? All right. So you, go, you, you take the ticket, and then you go to the restaurant, and then when you're there, you're finished, you say what? Hey, do you guys 
validate parking? And they're like, yeah, we validate parking. And you're like, oh, awesome, okay, so they stamp your ticket. So then you pull them out of the garage and you hand it to the person. They're like, okay, you're free to go. What does that mean? You don't have to pay. Think of righteousness as God's way of validating you. So now, look at what the text says. This is interesting, right? Because he says, for the gospel, in the gospel, that's the good news. I'll, I'll explain more about this word in a second. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God, God's way of validating you is revealed. It's something new. Something new is being revealed. Because in the past, you all thought you could get to God on your own terms through your self-righteous acts, because that's ultimately what ends up happening. You either think that I can earn my way to God or I have to have God's validation. God has to declare me righteous somehow. That's what he does through Jesus. Or I gotta get there on my own. I gotta pay that fee. So he says, now the righteousness of God is being revealed. You know, the righteousness you have, that's from man. That's not gonna get you there. So God will validate you. You can't validate yourself. It's always been that way from the beginning to the end. Now, what is it that we need to be validated for? Well, this is where it gets kind of gnarly because you can't understand how good the gospel is until you understand how bad your situation is. And the word gospel, this is not a word that was invented by Christians or by Paul himself. This word had been around. It was in popular use in the first century AD. In fact, it was very often applied to Caesar. Caesar used the word gospel. In fact, God, there was a gospel according to Caesar. Whenever, whenever Caesar acted, it was his gospel. Good news, Caesar is taking more of your money. You know, Good news, Caesar is, right? It was used to announce a birth. Good news, good news, gospel, it's a boy. Gospel, it's a girl. Gospel, I'm engaged. This is not a new word. It means good news. Now, Paul is about to tell you, you don't understand how good this news is in light of how horrible the news is that's about to come your way. Because here's the deal. God is bound by his nature. <laughs> and his nature demands penalty for wrongdoing. That's in your nature too. When you see somebody mistreat another person, when you see people wrong, when you see people lied to, cheated, you're like, oh, that guy needs to pay. But when you do it, you're like, hmm, can you just give me forgiveness and mercy? Bring justice to them, not to me. God doesn't play it that way. We all fall under the justice. Now, God's justice is tempered with love, and I'm gonna show you how that works. But for now, let's just say this. God's upset. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. So. That's rough because to a greater or lesser degree, we all fit into that category. We all do things that incur the wrath of God. We all do things that contribute to why this world is so jacked up. The overwhelming human tendency from birth, from birth is to rebel, is to want to live autonomously, to not have anybody tell us what to do. I personally hate being told what to do. I don't like it, but I need it. Humans need a North Star, something outside of themselves. We're very bad at leading ourselves, ultimately. I mean, look, look at the condition that the world is in. Paul's actually gonna speak directly to that, but it's really important to understand the words Paul uses to describe the anger of God. So here's what he says. There are a couple of primary Greek words used to describe anger. One of them is thumos, thumos, from which we get our English word thermos. What is a thermos? Thermos keeps your food hot, beverages hot, it was used to describe the kind of anger that is explosive, right? It's just explosive. It's like unrestrained. It's like that person who will, in the heat of the moment, do something irrational. 
That's not the word Paul uses to describe the anger of God. Instead, he uses the Greek word orge. This word's really, really interesting because it refers to this settled yet abiding discomfort that seeks to correct what is wrong. I think you see this in Jesus when he was at the temple. He overthrows the the tables of the money changers and stuff. And why? Because the offense was not a personal offense. Like what, what offends me, what makes me angry is when I don't get my way. But Jesus is like, you know what? You're offending God. You're offending God here. This is a house of worship. You guys, are, you guys are taking it in the wrong direction. You're leading people astray. And that's wrong. And I'm gonna do something about it. I'm gonna defend God on this one. It's a righteous anger. So God looks at humanity and he's like, hey, wait a minute. They're off track, you know. But rather than go, okay, redo, redo. We're just gonna, we're gonna annihilate everybody and start over. No, instead what he does is he says, okay, we need to make this right. What can we do? What can I do to begin to restore this relationship? That's the kind of anger that's described here. And that's a good thing. Now, what follows next is really interesting because this is actually the anatomy of unbelief. So this is revealing. So here's the question. Why is it that many people ignore God and even reject God? Why would a human reject a God? Paul's gonna tell you why. He says that the wrath of God is being revealed toward the godless and the unrighteous who suppress the truth by their wickedness. There's a lot here. In other words, what he's saying is, he's saying the godless and wicked lifestyle is actually the thing that stuffs down. That's what it means to suppress. That stuffs down and tries to hide and acknowledge the fact that God is real and that he exists. It's kind of like this. You have a beach ball and you try to hold it underwater and what happens? As soon as you let go, that ball is going to come to the surface. And so you've got to apply some pressure to keep that thing under the water. And you're kind of fighting it and fighting it and fighting it. And what Paul says is be real. The reason why you reject God is because you want to live the life you want to live. You're worshiping your own autonomy. You don't want anybody telling you what to do. You don't want to be held accountable for your actions. The knowledge of God is actually inside you. It actually is. But you're suppressing it. You're holding it down. Now, what's interesting about the truth is that it always wants to rise to the surface. It's always wanting to rise to the surface. But these people keep it down and they keep it down because of their sinful actions. And we know it to be true. There is a truth that God exists and that God is good. And if you deny this, Paul says, you are totally without excuse. And here's why. Since what may be known about God, it's plain to them. Okay, this isn't hard to figure out. Because God has made it plain to them. How so? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature. Two things about God can be known. He has, a, he has incredible power and divine nature. He's good. Now, how do we know? These things have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. 
so that people are without excuse. So here's what he's saying. In other words, nature, creation, gives overwhelming evidence that there is a creator God. Design and order imply a designer. The more complicated the design, the more intelligent the designer. Now, much could be said here. There are many great books written on this subject. Two of them I'll mention to you. Number one, one one recommendation I have is a book called uh, Darwin's Black Box by Michael Behe, excellent book. The second one is written by Stephen Meyer, and just a super brilliant guy. This guy is like next level. And he's a scientist who is a Christian, and he wrote a book called Darwin's Doubt. Recently, Joe Rogan interviewed him. I highly recommend you listen to Joe's podcast with him. It's fascinating. In it, Stephen kind of pulls back the curtain and reveals something. For about the last 10 years, at the Royal Society's gathering, these are, 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 this is a gathering of the world's elite scientists. What they've been saying in private is that there has never been a bigger disconnect between what the public believes, public opinion about neo-Darwinian evolution and what the scientists are actually saying to each other. They're really deeply questioning now the processes of evolution, specifically mutations. See, I, mutations are overwhelmingly harmful. I'm a mutant. I'm colorblind. It's a mutation in my eye. That doesn't help me. My wife has to dress me. I think it's black on black. I trust her. It's a mutation. It doesn't help me. Natural selection, and now they're coming to the point where they're like, hey, we've had a lot of time. We've got a lot of fossils. You know, if we're to be honest with each other, we've got to realize <laughs> natural selection really doesn't give us any kind of answer from one species change to another. So what they're saying sort of privately behind closed doors, never been a bigger disconnect than what the public believes and what the scientists are actually saying to each other now. Johannes Kepler was, he's considered the father of modern day astronomy. He's the guy that invented the word satellite. He said this, the undevout astronomer is mad. In other words, to look at the universe and say there is no God, there is no creator God, we are here by happy chance, I think it is, as Dawkins says. He says, that's insane. It's totally insane. God's power can be seen through creation. I'm an Arizona native, man. I love this state. This is my town, born and raised here. I'm a monsoon freak. This year, it's been super weak. Last year was epic. I think I've told you before. When the monsoons start to roll in, man, I grab a lawn chair, make sure it's plastic. I put it in the, in the, in the middle of the yard, and I'm just kicking back, and I'm like, yeah. And those big old dark clouds roll in, and then the wind comes, and then you start to smell it. That smell of rain in the summer on the desert, it's the sweetest smell. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> and the thunder and lightning, they're cracking, and the rain just pours. It's like, wow, man, there's some power in God's nature. Power in God's nature. I mean, there's stuff that God has created for his own pleasure. I'm convinced of it. There's some freaky creatures in the abyss. <laughs> stuff that, it's like, it's like, you know, we go down there and we're like, wait, what? Bioluminescence? And it's like, yeah, God's like, I enjoy that all the time. <laughs> there are these powers, right? And these galaxies, these gravitational pulls. And you're like, I can't even begin to fathom that power. And God's like, yeah, that's cool. I, I spin those things around. It's fun. 
for his own pleasure. What other reason? There's stuff that goes on that God must just be like, let's do this. And he speaks. This is why words are powerful. Words are very powerful. He speaks. Words are, your words are important. They're powerful. He speaks them into existence. It's the power of words. Uh, you're without excuse. That's the point. Um, you can be an academic, intellectual atheist. Intellectual atheist. No, listen, I think at best intellectual agnostic because to be an atheist is to say, I know everything about everything and therefore I have declared there is no God. You would have to be supreme being to, to make that claim. Intellectual atheist, intellectual atheist, intellectual agnostic, I'm not certain. I think that's honesty, honesty. You can be an intellectual agnostic, that's the honest part. So, or you're the simple, you're the simple guy like me, okay? We're both without excuse. <laughs> you know what's interesting? When some remote tribe is discovered, everybody's like, a new tribe. We never knew they existed. We made human contact with humans. And what are they like? You know what they're like? You know what, you know what you're gonna find in common with every single one of them? They worship. Isn't that interesting? They worship. Why? Because we were created to worship. To worship is to ascribe worth to something. So what happens is, now what Paul does, his words are weighty. What he does next, man, it's so good. He's gonna say, look, if you deny God, you're gonna worship something. So then what he does next is he describes this, this trajectory. It's a downward unwinding of humanity. You reject the worship of God, watch this. You're gonna worship something and it ain't gonna end well. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. So one of the ways you dishonor God is by not giving him thanks. But their thinking became futile. We evolved from scum. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They're keeping that ball underneath the water and it's getting harder and harder, more and more of a struggle because the truth wants to come to the top. Here's the progression. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. We have the evidence. We follow the science. Here's what we're saying behind closed doors. Let them think what they want. Here's the narrative. We are the wise ones. And if you do not believe us, then you are the fools. No, deny God, claim to be wise, and you're the fool. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for something else. And here's where it starts. We deny God, we don't want him to be real, we don't want him to exist so we can keep doing our thing. Meanwhile, we reap what we sow. Our lives are not what we want them to be. We think we're autonomous. We're actually a slave to all the things now that have wrapped, wrapped themselves, wrapped up. It's like we've gotten wrapped up in the axle now. It's, 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 it's bad for us. But yeah, we're autonomous. We're, we're free. And, and, and as the truth is suppressed, there's a foolishness that grows. And now we, we have exchanged the worship of God for the worship of man. So we'll just, you know, that's, it's for the change the image of God. That's what the text says, for the image of man. But then at some point you're gonna go, yeah, men aren't that great. Yeah, humans are, yeah, I don't know if they're really worthy of my worship. Uh, well, what else? There's a longing there to, work, to ascribe worth to something. So what's it gonna be? Well, let's, okay, man's out. So birds, birds are beautiful creatures, right? Birds. So let's, let's worship the birds. Let's make, let's make idols. We'll bow down to these birds. Yeah, well, now that's getting a little old, not really getting what we're wanting. So how about animals, cats and dogs? Okay, so we'll make those figures and we'll bow down and we'll worship them. Now that's not enough, so what's left? Slithery things. 
lizards, snakes? Do you, do you see the unraveling? And all the while, humanity's like, we're so wise. It won't be this. This won't fulfill us. It'll be that. Well, not that. Now it'll be this. And what's left? Snakes. Isn't it interesting that in the garden, how does Satan appear as a snake? And what do Adam and Eve do? They worship it. How so? To, to worship something is to ascribe worth to it. They ascribe more worth to the words of Satan than to the words of God. They worshiped. And it didn't end well. So, out of time. Um, there's a separation. There's this gap between man and God. And man is always attempting to get there, get there, get there. Some toward supremeness. I don't need God. I'll get there on my own. You can't fill that on your own. You can't validate your own ticket. You have to have a validation, a righteousness that is supplied to you. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. God did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. So here's the question. Have you been suppressing the truth about God? Here's how you know. What habit are you hanging on to? That habit, you might be think, you, you think you can't live without. It's mastering you. It's owning you. You're a slave to it. The truth wants to rise to the surface. The thing about when that ball rises to the surface, you know the beautiful thing about it? All you have to do, you realize, you just hang on to it, and what happens? It's doing all the work. Now you're just floating around, hanging on to the truth. And your life is like, no more fight, no more struggle, no no more suppression of what I always knew to be true. Have you been suppressing the truth about God? I'm gonna have you bow your heads and close your eyes. Well, we're not even out of chapter one. Amazing, isn't it? How the Bible speaks to modern times, screams, it shouts. And while it hits us with the truth, the reality of God's righteous anger, I'm okay with it. In fact, I'm happy with it. Because it brings a corrective measure in my life, and when I follow it, it gives me the life I've always wanted. And then secondly, Understand that the anger of God is always tempered by his divine goodness. That's why Paul is very selective in the words he uses to describe God's wrath. So God, I pray that your gospel, your good news would just hit differently even today in this moment. That we would understand the richness of it, how sweet it is because of the desperate situation that humanity is in. This is the solution, your solution to man's problem. Pray that we would imitate these early believers in the city of Rome, that Illuminate Community Church's faith would be known far and wide. That is the standard. God, we're just so grateful that you've done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. As we leave this place, may we live in that. Be motivated to extend that message to those around us. We ask it in the name of the one who makes it possible. His name is Jesus Christ and God's people said,